BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Diversity Remix, only provocative conversations at the intersection of business, politics, and culture. I'm Charlie Echeverry. And I'm Jesus Chavez. This week's episode, we have wall-to-wall, Courage or Cringe, featuring Ni Adi. In this week's Courage or Cringe segment, Dr. Zeus, Mike Pence breaks his silence, and YouTube reinstating Trump. Should creators of the past be held to the current political standards, or do we risk repeating history if we don't know our own? Should the same reasons that contributed to the Capitol attack be used to justify changing voting policy? And should enforcement of rules on social platforms vary based on the current political or social circumstances? Or should offenses committed be valid indefinitely? This and much more in this special Courage or Cringe episode of TDR. Jesus. Charlie. We're back. We are. And this time we're not alone. With a great guest. We're excited. Super excited to have with us a friend of the show. Early listener of TDR, by the way. Maybe, maybe the earliest. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Um, the chief marketing officer of Philo TV, a thought leader and friend, Ni Adi Ni. What's going on? Hello, hello, hello. What a privilege. Great to have you, my friend. Yeah, I'm, uh, this is one of my top five podcasts. I'm not just saying that because y'all are here, but uh, wow. I really, really like what you're doing. So that's great. Fact, okay, I in that case, so, so, so which are the other four? In that case, <laughs> now, now I'm really curious to see what, what list we're on. Let's see. We got Rogan on there. We got Breakfast Club on there. Nice. The Daily. Um, and then the rest probably switch out depending on what episode. Okay. Sure, sure. I think that you, that's probably a few of yours too. Yeah, we, we overlap quite a bit. Yeah, it's to the daily, literally every day. Uh, up first is usually what I, I usually do. My routine, morning routine is up first and the daily. Uh, and then I do quite a bit of Joe Rogan. Freakonomics would be another one of mine that I listen to quite a bit. Um, so yeah, I think, I think we got to figure out. Up. We have to figure out a way to like invent like non-linear podcast listening or something because like at the end of the day, we're just like it's just one of these things after the other, and it's like you got you know yeah. it's a lot. Of, you got to block off the time to get it done. Yeah, yeah, you do. Although I think if you make it part of a routine for me because I run quite a bit, it's, that's, that's true. That's where that's I true. listen to most of my Multitask. podcasts. Multitask. That's yeah, true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's always while well, I do something else. Very good. Ni, um, as as we mentioned, you're the CMO of Philo TV. You're your person has been in the media space for quite a while. You, you know, we go back with you quite a, quite a bit. Um, you've been involved in a lot of really interesting emerging platforms and, 
you know, uh, Jesus and I consider you a thought leader in the area of diversity for a number of different reasons. But like, what have you been up to? Give uh, give us the the the, the four one one on what the latest has been. Sure. I mean, you know, trying to grow five. I think we met when I was at Comcast, and so that's right. coming that's right. from one one angle, the entertainment media spectrum. And uh, I jumped out of Comcast to Philo, which is coming at it from the startup perspective, trying to be a disruptor. So this 2021 has been a tornado you know started off hitting the ground running the media landscape is changing really quickly every day new companies popping up some companies not making it you know pluses here there and everywhere so yeah it's really been trying to grow and sustain our our disruptive brand while you know off the backs of the social justice movement last year i think one of the big benefits of being executive of color in this space and tech in you know the bay area right now is being able to help frame what this particular company is doing about that in terms of sustained culture shift and how we integrate that within our dna and so that's been a lot of my focus is not so much you know the business is going pretty well about how do we build a team a culture uh, in a way that fortifies the communities that we serve across the board so what's what's the corporate role Right and changing yeah. the dynamic. That's great. Yeah, there's there's a lot of pluses. Uh, I never heard it put that way, but yeah. you're right because we just had Paramount Plus, right? It was mm-hmm. uh, obviously one. Disney Plus kind of thing kicked the whole thing off, and now it's just Plus means not regular TV. Right? How'd that happen? Like it's like uh, Insta brand. Um, yeah, that, that's that is true. Group, group think, but then at, at some point, <laughs> <laughs> consumers do all you marketers you just get together? That's what it is, man. So you get together. Uh, just add a plus to it. What that's do you guys all. think? Plus or should we do multiplies? No plus. <laughs> yeah, that's that, cool. That's pretty funny. So, Nee, you've heard the show before, obviously. Um, you know, we haven't been doing this that long, but you've been giving us uh, really great feedback and advice the whole way, so we, which we've always appreciated. But today we're doing a little something special. We've done it a few times before, but we're actually dedicating the entire hour, kind of skipping over that deep dive and, go, and going directly into our Courage or Cringe segment. Jesus, you want to remind us how we play this game? How the rules going to go. Yeah, so we're going to cover, uh, in this case, we're going to cover three topics. Uh, I'll lay out the sort of the context of what the topic is. And the idea is that each person uh, needs to take a stance one way or the other, right? It's either something that is courageous or cringeworthy, and then just make your case why, right? So um, obviously, this will be a lot more of a conversation. So the idea here is obviously to uh, push a little bit each other and our assumptions. Um, and of course, in some cases, like the reality, some of these, con- uh, these topics are really deep. So we'll speak to them to the degree that we can. Um, and, um, you know, if there's some information missing, we'd like to come back later on and give more, more details if we can. But if not, you know, we'll do our best to at least have a position with us be as informed as we can be. But some of these are pretty deep and, and actually real time changing. So it kind of is what it is. And as per usual, a very colorful assortment of yes. topics today, ranging from children's books to uh, XVPs to social platforms. So lots to discuss. Ni, nee, are you ready to play? I am ready. What All right. Win? I can't wait. All right. All right. Jesus, well, what's first? Let's get started. Uh, Dr. Zeus, let's get started with that one. That has been on the news quite a bit. So Quite a bit. Let's give a little bit of context, right? So Dr. Zeus Enterprises. By the way, is it Zeus or is it Seuss? Because I, I've heard it both ways. Um, Do I don't know? know. I don't know, I but now you have Seuss. me very confused. That's what I've Seuss. heard my whole life. Seuss so, with an S, right? We'll go with yeah. Seuss in that case. Yeah. Um, Although Dr. Zeus gives that like the whole Mount yeah, Olympus yeah, yeah. thing. I kind of like that a little more. better pronunciation, but... We're going with Dr. Seuss. Uh, Dr. Seuss Enterprises announced last week that it will no longer publish six of its books because they, they, in quotes, portray people in ways that are Mm -hmm. hurtful and wrong. 
Now, their decision came after they consulted some educators. In a statement, they said, seizing sale of these books is only part of our commitment and our broader plan to enter Dr. Seuss Enterprises catalog represents and supports all communities and families. Now, these titles include If I Ran a Zoo, And To Think That I Saw It on Mulberry Street, Michaela God's Pool, On Beyond Zebra, Scrambler's Eggs Super, uh, and The Cat Quizzer. Um, now, uh, by the way, I don't remember a single one of those. Yeah, so some of these are I never heard of, except for. But which, by the way, means nothing because like the titles of these books, half the time is not like you read it, you just don't remember the title. You know, it's like cat and hats and green eggs. Yeah, and stuff that's true. Like that. But my, my daughter has a pretty uh, extensive list of Dr. Seuss books, uh-huh. and the second one, to think that I saw it on Mulberry Street, I, I read it plenty of times. Yeah, and this is kind of the funny thing about this this topic is that. Not once when I read it did I even like think about something being like racist undertone in the in the in the book. It is not totally then I had to go back and then look at it. I'm like that one specifically caught my attention immediately because I recognized the name right away. Right. because uh, we read it a lot of times and so that was kind of interesting, right? Um by the way, part of what was interesting here is the announcement itself was actually made on the on the on the same day as the birthday of Dr. Seuss, which is, you know, timing wise it felt a little you know, I'm not, sure, nice. not sure what's up. Everybody with that. wants to be, you know, canceled on their birthday. By their own company. By their just, own just company. Just to be clear. Just no, remind no, people no, no, that, no, right? I know, so, I know, I know, I know. We'll get to it. We'll get uh, to it. So according to a study published in the Journal on Research on Diversity in Youth Literature, uh, it reported that Dr. Seuss had some history of publishing racist and anti-Semitic work. Hmm. Uh, so while at Dartmouth College in the 1920s, he drew black boxers as gorillas and stereotyped of Jewish characters with oversized noses and portraying them as financially stingy. The study examined 50 books by Dr. Seuss and found 43 of the 45 characters of color had characteristics that were aligning with the definition of oriental, orientalism, sorry, orientalism, yeah. orientalism, uh, or the stereotypical offensive portrayal of Asians, and then the two African characters the study said both had uh, anti-black uh, characteristics. So I, I actually included, and we'll include this in our show notes, some some samples, some images of some of the uh, some of the images that were more controversial that I was specifically referring to. Right. Um, so you know we could we could speak to those as we, as we kind of you know, go along. But the last part, which I thought was kind of hilarious, is was of course Ted Cruz, and, and to oh. me, Ted Cruz is really trying to take on the mantle. Like now that Trump has been banned from Twitter, it's like you need to right. have someone else going to be an idiot all the time. <laughs> so I think he's like, I'm going to be the guy who's going to take this on. So he he put up a tweet uh, where he said, "Who knew Joe Biden was such a great bookseller?" And then he put the like the I guess the the uh, top eight books. That were bestsellers, all were Doctor Zeus books. By the way, none of these eight books are in the in the list that got are in the list of, of the, the, the ones that got right. that got you know taken off. Right. And the fact that he's attributing all this to Joe Biden, who had nothing to do with this whatsoever, that it was, was Doctor Seuss and Enterprises, right? Which is like, <laughs> so you're giving like credit to the wrong person. You're adding the books that are not even included in this list. And then he added, by the way, to his own tweet, could Biden try to ban my book next? One vote away from the number one bestseller on Amazon a couple of months ago. Maybe Joe could get it back there uh, and get it here. So ultimately, it became more of a pitch for him to sell his own book. Mm-hmm. But uh, I thought this is very emblematic sure. of the times that we're living in, which is all around an you know, overreaction, cancel culture. Sure. And even attributing things to, you know, in this case, a party that really had nothing to do with it. It was definitely a flashpoint all last week. Nee, wh- you know, when you first saw this, by the way, like what's your personal history with Dr. Seuss, with you, with your kids? You know, uh, w- what's that about? I, I certainly grew up with Dr. Seuss and the Cat in the Hat, and mostly the the more mainstream titles. We have a few. I have a three and a half year old daughter, and we have a few spinoff books, which are more around. They're like excerpts of Dr. Seuss books uh-huh. that mm-hmm. we have, but we really didn't have the array, just haphazardly. Right. Um, so it was interesting when this came down. 
the news cycle in particular because because it had the kids angle right mm. a lot of these things are political discourse and, and corporate discourse and things like yeah. that but it's yeah. a little bit different when you're thinking about well how is this going to impact how we nurture and raise the next generation of people and because of that a group of friends who we all have kids around the same age it came up in that discussion like what are we oh, okay. collectively going to do it's a pretty wide arranging yeah. group of folks in terms of you know all, all sorts of different types of perspectives uh to come down to like well, well what's the right thing to do you know, mm-hmm. there's different people, people of color on here, people with different backgrounds and understandings so that the group could come to some understanding. At the end of the day, everyone's going to make their own decision. But we wanted to have an informed perspective, which I think it's it stood out in this particular instance to me. Absolutely. OK, so you've got some history. You've got some personal connection with it. This isn't like, um, you know, you're invested in this even before the story came out to some degree, which is good. This is exactly the right recipe. So we always start with the guests first. Per Nia. tradition. Yeah. Per tradition. So um, and what, by the way, the courage or cringe is on the fact that the foundation announced these books will no longer correct be published. So was that action courageous or cringeworthy? I believe it was courageous, and here's why. All right. Most of the, I feel like, in the world of cancel culture, and this is them canceling themselves, which already, from my perspective, is is one step possibly in the courageous direction, is that it wasn't a wholesale blind, we're just going to stop publishing all all Dr. Seuss's works because, you know, Mm racism or, or what have you. It was mm-hmm. a more thoughtful exercise. They spoke with communities, they spoke with educators, and they made a decision based on their own values. And it could have had, you know, even financial aspects to it. But when, it, when they thought about it holistically, it was important to them that they not reinforce these particular tropes and biases that have negative impact on some groups of people. And really, that's where I think most of this dis- course needs to go is like getting more nuanced instead of making broad sweeping mm-hmm. decisions and cancellations is thinking about really what is the context which which of these are problematic and how are we going to move forward given what we know and what we care about mm-hmm. yeah and did you um I, I guess in terms of that nuance um I, I take it by that you mean that they're not sort of wholesale i guess getting rid of of all of Dr. collection, Seuss, all yeah. of Dr. Seuss or right. eliminating his, you know, whatever distribution or what have you. It's more of, of like, hey, these are specific titles and we think that these ones just should no longer be produced. Right. They didn't. Um, and it's not as if these books are going to be completely inaccessible. It's just that right, they're sure. not going to be mass producing them any longer, which is, mm-hmm. you know, if you need to find it, it will be in libraries. And I think some of the articles that I read, there's one uh, site called Storytime in the Stacks that is from a librarian's perspective. Mm-hmm. And I found that to hmm. be poignant in the sense that they talk about, they have all kinds of books that have all kinds of thought, whether it come from a bigoted place, whether it be Nazi mm-hmm. text, whatever, you know, all kinds of literature, right? We're in a free society where you want to be able to research and see how people thought in the past or, or what these different perspectives were. That is something different, though, than featuring Mm-hmm. these works as like book of the month club or, or, you know, pushing it to the forefront. And then it was interesting to me how they categorized it and sort of the role that these sorts of things play versus just taking a wholesale. We're not going to offer these, 
text. Yeah, in I, I saw a really similar coverage. So I, wonder, I wonder if it was the same publication that I was looking at, me, but it was a similar thing, right? Because I think part of the response that you saw right away is people trying to decide what is the right way to handle something like this. Mm-hmm. And I did see something similar from a librarian's perspective. And yeah, their position was much more, well, we don't necessarily agree that it should be completely gone, but instead should be put into a different type of, of category. Of, of, of these books that have some of this information that needs context before we even present it to children. Um, and I thought that was actually a pretty, pretty yeah. smart way to go in terms of how to, how to show this. Um, and, and the action that the foundation took was, at least as I understand it, just to, to kind of build on Nee's point, that they are no longer selling that book, right? Correct. Okay. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. They won't be publishing anymore. They're not going to be publishing it and selling, or, the, or those books, rather. Yeah, I think one thing that I'm, I was curious about, I wonder if they are able to, I guess maybe not, make any kind of edits to it. Right. Like literally just take out those pages or add disclaimers mm-hmm. as you get to that section. But, I mean, that would be another Is way to handle it. Is that a censorship it. slippery slope, though? Yeah, maybe. But in this case, when it's your own, when you're the company that's doing it, right? I mean, I think the, the, the whole true. point here about cancel culture or censorship is that always seems like that could be the case when it's, some, when it's a third party doing it to you, not what you're doing it to yourself. Like when it's self-regulated, is that really censorship? I, I guess you can say that, but right. it's to yourself, right? Um, well, in this the, case, the author's not around to speak on his behalf, right? And obviously, yeah, but, but it's still the is the organization that right. represents his behalf, right? The business so, next of kin. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> so, Power so, of so, authorship. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. Exactly. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, that would be one way to to do it. So if you want, I can go next. Go for it. Yeah, so for me, I'm I'm with me on this one. Uh, I thought it was not surprised. I thought it was courageous. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but to me, I, I guess look for the reason that this is courageous is, is the one that Nia already mentioned. Like this was done by the by its own company, them coming out and saying, "Hey, you know, we now that we looked at it again, and and especially in the context of 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 you know culture changing, et cetera, what's acceptable changing, being literally a different time, we just don't think that these books best represent the kind of brand that we want to have, mm-hmm. right? And how we want to teach children. Therefore, we're going to pause it." So I thought that made sense. I, I find that move to be courageous. What I was most surprised about was actually like knowing that I was so familiar with one of the books and it never once crossed my mind. And the one that I actually included an image of it, right? So the image there is, for those of you guys who can't see it, of course, and listening to it, the, the book is called, uh, that I mentioned is called And to Think That I Saw It on Mulberry Street. Just to give you guys a really quick background. So this book is about this little boy who, who's walking on his way home. And um, he knows that when he gets home, he's going to get quizzed by, by his dad in terms of what he saw or didn't see. Uh, but this kid has this, you know, he's used to, like, he's always lying. He's always embellishing the story. Uh-huh. So he's literally thinking to himself what story he's going to tell as he's walking home. And every time, and, and all he saw was, like, this cart and boogie, like, like, going down the street. But he thinks if he tells that story, that's kind of boring. So he keeps on adding to it. He's like, oh, maybe instead of a horse, it was an elephant. If it was, so he that's he, all with the Chinese man in the chopsticks, right? Yeah. So he basically becomes this sort of grandiose scene that he supposedly mm-hmm. he saw as he's walking by, mm-hmm. and there's this image of this basically Asian person who's who's in this case says they say he's Chinese who's running, eating some noodles, and it says underneath them a Chinese man who eats with sticks. And the challenge is that how like this the stereotypes that they're using to describe him and to and the way that he looks. And there's something by the way when you look at some of his other books, whenever he refers to Asian uh, people. They are in this very stereotypical look um, mm-hmm. that I could definitely understand. If someone, may more likely, if someone from Chinese descent, if sees this, they would be a lot more sensitive to it. 
Right. right. And, well, and, I, and in 2021, they'd be a lot more sensitive to it, perhaps 50, 60, 75 years ago when this was written, maybe not yeah. so much then. Well, yeah, yeah, or just didn't have enough, or it was so common practice, right? Sure. Because if you, see, if you see a cartoon on Tom and Jerry's, like the old ones, mm-hmm. they had tons of like racist things that were on them all the time. Yeah. Right? And it, it was just so common practice that I think as consumers, we were just used to seeing it, seeing it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was, for me, the kind of surprising part is when I, I read this book plenty of times, so immediately it, it sort of hit my radar, and I had to like, literally look for it and find <clears> out, like, what I exactly that, were they talking about? I and, remember and that I picture. Think that's the, and to me, that's the part where I definitely understand how it is important to, like, make those corrections because, in essence, this is the same type of things that I'm reading to my daughter and teaching her that it's okay. If I don't call it out, if I make no comment, kids are super perceptive. And everything they see and they, and, they, and, they, and they look at, they think it's okay unless someone's going to say something else about it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where context really makes sense. And at least having the ability to, you know, highlight it so that as parents, if we do choose to actually read this book or this book specifically uh, to our kids, then at least we have the, 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 you know, the ability to, like, highlight it right. and easily be recognized that, hey, by the way, this is a moment for us to have a real conversation as to what it meant and why these images were the way they were and give that kind of context. Um, but for all those reasons, I, I came back as, as as courage. But I was honestly a little surprised at myself that when I saw it, it, it is something that I had sort of just glossed over it. And I think I that's the other thing too. When it comes to cancel culture, it, it, it's a, the type of thing that I think people are against it, but they don't agree with it. But it's also, you know, what's considered to be offensive. It really is on the eye of the beholder. And I, well, sure, I, even but, the case but that's of, one of the challenges. And even the it case makes of, it very difficult to police, right? If it's always against the correct. eye of the beholder, but how even, do you solve for that? But even in the case of someone being diverse, like I don't want Asian people, you know, being depicted in a racist manner. But I'm significantly less sensitive to Asian people being depicted in a racist manner than I am even African American people. Yeah, right. And maybe part of it because in the in the general culture, there's a, a lot more of that gets talked about. That and I feel bad because you know I see these cases and like these, especially the top right image that we have here. Mm-hmm. You see these three Asian men with carrying this animal on top of their head and like super stereotypical images, right? Mm-hmm. But even then, if I saw it in the, without a context of this conversation, I may just look at it and, and not think twice about it. Yeah, and I think that's the part that is it is difficult. But I but I do think that's why these moves are to me are courageous to actually recognize them for what they actually are. Yeah, which is a bad depiction of, of people's culture. Nee, were you going to add something there? No, I had a similar reaction because I saw those images and when I saw them again through the lens of what we're talking about now in terms of the impact, like as I mentioned earlier, the impact it could have on my daughter and people who have new eyes who are coming into a world that doesn't Mm -hmm. necessarily need to reinforce those things. I was kind of disappointed in myself in a way. Yeah. But then I was also thinking, you know, how would you depict these characters Jesus, you mentioned, what if they edited it? Would it be better? And I think, you know, we have plenty of books that talk about different cultures and things like that. And it will go through the foods that people eat and the the dress they wear. And is it the context because it's known that Dr. Seuss was coming from a place where he was pretty ingrained and supportive of negative stereotypes uh, in, in terms of how he characterized and caricatured people uh, who were non-white or, or whatever, not on the dominant class, or is it literally how these particular things were drawn? And I think there are some that are pretty clearly, you know, if you're not, you're not drawing everybody like this and you're, it's really dives into a particular characterization of an entire people. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we had somebody else redraw it, would right. that would then it be? be okay? Even if it was, they had characteristics of that, culture or yeah or race. i think that's a that's a great point and it's, it's really hard to decouple those two things right from each other 
because in the context, I mean, I would say even in doing the research for this, the more I was learning about the history of Dr. Seuss, the less benefit of the doubt I would give to any of these individual images. So to your point, it, it does matter in this case. Um, I also think there is degrees here that we're talking about, right? There is that one image on the that we I'm, just, I'm describing this. I apologize, people that obviously can't see it, but there's one where you see these two tribesmen that are, you know, probably African based on this picture, but they're so to the extent that they're so character uh, like characters, right? They almost don't look human anymore. Is it? Is it? And that's a. And yeah. I think that's a an example where, like, even in his case, where he creates a lot of these sort of different, you know, different kind of characters. Yeah. That one seems as such an extreme in mm -hmm. terms of drawing those those figures that are obviously supposed to represent someone that is African, but it almost looks like an animal. Frankly, like that's the way it almost looks that way. That it, it, it almost loses all the humanity of that of that person, and I just think that that one it would be hard to justify in any scenario. Some of the other ones, to Nee's point, I think is more because, um, you know, when you get the context of, of the history of him and you, then you look at the image, I think it makes it, makes it hard. To In typical justify. fashion, I'm sure that we could probably spend the whole hour talking about this one particular one. My, my um, and, and you, by the way, maybe we should spend more time on it, but um, my issue with this, um, because I actually came down on cringe and the reason is a number of, well, there's a number of different reasons why I came down on. Number one is I, I realized that the first, you know, from the get-go, the fact that they sort of self-censured and that they did it on themselves puts us in a completely different category. This isn't, you know, uh, angry, angry Twitter people, you know, sure. canceling somebody. And that means something. I think that makes, that makes a big difference. But I also wondered kind of a variation of what Nee's question was, which was, okay, let's, let's look at this thing in context. First of all, these are caricatures. That's the art form that we're talking about, right? They're caricatures. By nature, caricatures embellish a certain thing in order to accentuate that contrast or that difference. So if we were trying to show somebody from an Asian culture, how would we depict them in a way that would be okay with the people who are presently offended in this particular context? And the answer to me is, I don't know. Like, I don't know how we would do that. Um, and so I wonder about that. I also think about, you know, like for instance, my family's Colombian. And there are things that are emblematic or iconic of the Colombian culture that always get brought up. Like when you have, you know, back in the day, there used to be like the Miss Universe contests and all those things. And there'd be those moments where Miss Columbia would come out and she'd have like, there was like coffee and there were emeralds. It's like because those are things that are iconic or emblematic of that particular culture. And by, by having recourse to them, you're not necessarily insulting that that particular population but you're using it as a way to call attention to that particular culture the easy thing would have been to just not include anybody asian is that better or is that worse even back then you know what i'm saying it's like would it have been better to just have all white people in the book and would we be accusing him of not having any diversity or is you know does he but, get but any I, but credit i think for that's that? kind of the point no charlie is like you he did pretty much always all include all white people and the only times where they don't there is some kind of just more view of what this culture is in a manner that right. is very obvious. This is something else. This what I remember other, about Dr. Right? Seuss so is I that think he that's the challenge that did, I see. He didn't do very many people at all. He did figures and strange creatures and, you it know. It depends on the story. I mean, maybe, like, if you, I don't know if you do that, but it really does depend on the story. I have a lot of the books. I'm sure. Fortunately or unfortunately, I have a pretty extensive library of, 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 uh, of these books. And I think, I think also maybe that's part of the problem in that he's depicting the these these other cultures as strange animals right <laughs> and if you think about like a lot of what we're dealing with now in terms of trying to heal the country is around bias and bias is very subtle and it comes out very subtle mm -hmm. ways and it's just 
you know, you're inundated through the media, through the way people interact, all of those sorts of things. And so mm-hmm. what is the value, I wonder, from your, your perspective, Charlie, mm-hmm. to understand at a philosophical level what you're saying, what is the value in reinforcing? Because most of these are negative, dehumanizing uh, stereotypes. It's not like they are accentuating in the character, right. like positive things. It's things that really go hand in hand with some of the negative tropes right and so this is like the visual representation of, of some of those things well in the in the one that we just talked about with the um the asian character with the chopsticks right and he's running next to a magician who you know could be any race as far as i right. know doing something very similar you know i think the idea there is obviously for the purposes of the story the rhyme scheme you know some of this like fantastical way that he told stories but i think what he's doing is he's he's showing somebody d- depicted in what I would call maybe more of a traditional kind of a, of a thing, right? The fact that Asian cultures use chopsticks is a real thing. That is a real thing. In fact, we've appropriated a lot of that ourselves. Even when we go to Asian restaurants, we use their own utensils. That's not like an invention, right? And so I don't see anything inherently offensive in that particular image. The one that you described earlier, Jesus, is a different subject, right? And I understand that that, that can be perceived in that particular way. But I guess what I'm saying is that I also know that Dr. Seuss, at least by all accounts, was a person who really valued diversity, right? I remember the book of the Sneetches and how, like, one of the, the Sneetches had the, the ones that had the star on the belly right. that they thought they were more special, and ultimately they found out, like, no, we're all the same, and we're all valuable, and we all have, you know, dignity. And, like, I think that's the orientation of this, you know, particular author. And so I don't, in these, in these drawings, I see something, yes, anachronistic, something, yes, that's a little bit, that's dated, that's old. But I don't, I don't see this sort of desire to want to be willfully, you know, it, to injure people or to, or to be racist in that particular way. And, and ultimately, look, the reason why I came down on cringe, by the way, I'm giving a lot of buildup. None of these are the reason why I came down on cringe. The reason I came down on cringe was that I had something to compare it to that I think is actually a better, uh, a better example. And that's what um, Turner Classic Movies has done with uh, – they kind of created a franchise. I'm trying to remember the name of the franchise. You know exactly what you're talking about. You know what yeah. I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they, they They're cr- showing all these like basically controversial films, or historical controversial films under part of this, yeah, this franchise. And it's – it's everything from like had like racist depictions, all kind. Of, I mean, like a good example is Gone with the Wind, right? Which right, is, and they, which was mm-hmm. taken off by um, which is the which is one of the plus ones that has it. <laughs> I forget which one it was. Yeah, but 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 they, but it, I just found it. It's called Reframed. Okay, right. so it's Turner Classic Movies Reframed, and it actually provides this context. It's almost like a, it's not quite editing what you were saying, but it is basically recontextualizing. Okay, when we're going to watch this, here's a, some some things to bear in mind. To me, it seems like that would have been a step that would have been easier to do. Give the parent, or not easier, more appropriate to do. Give the parents that additional whatever it was, that additional uh, editorial paragraph that that video you could put on youtube that explanatory piece on to the extent you ever even showed these books to your kids what to make of it rather than just eliminate them so i just think that like look i'm one of those believers who like if we don't if we don't if we kind of run from our history or we try to erase a lot of it we're probably going to be repeating it and so i i just to me philosophically it just bugs me when we try to like erase or eliminate things rather than trying to help people understand them in today's world what they could possibly mean and if they choose not to use them then great they don't use them but i just think like taking them away is something that ultimately to me feels like a step too far and that's ultimately why i came down on the side of of uh, of cringe 
And the other thing is, and this is, you know, I think the point that Cruz was trying to make is not so much that the books he was saying were... were uh, Cruz makes no point. Please don't do the fandom. No, no, no. What, I, what I'm saying is that all the books went up in popularity. The, the, the Dr. Seuss books, I mean, they, they all boomed, right? Because of all this commotion. It's right? also a Read Across America Day, which is directly tied with Dr. Seuss. In which he which wasn't mentioned for the first time the ever first by time. President Biden, right? Correct. Because So now he's not worthy to be mentioned. And that's another problem because I don't think that we... Now we've thrown him out from because of all this. And I think that's also wrong. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm not buying it today, Charlie. Okay. I, I think the challenge here is that it, it's good to give context. And I, and I agree. I'm all about giving context. It's just very different when you put it in, in the, the frame of children. Mm-hmm. Because giving nuanced context to young kids, it's hard. And there's a certain age. So it's the degree that you have some of these characters that are included on here. And, you know, we talk about biases. It's really hard to then decouple, like, yeah, we're okay reading this and you've seen this, but also there's something a little bit wrong about this. And trying to explain both of those conflicting thoughts to young, especially young, young kids, I think is much harder to do. If you take these books and put them in the context, like what, the, what, we're, what actually what Neil was referring to, actually, and I read it as well, which is if you move them out of the regular reading to the, the section of, hey, historical context of maybe books that were part of our literature that sure. had a, a lot of things that were maybe okay at the time, but no longer are the case. That's a different thing that as adults, you can have a conversation, debate about maybe you include them or not. You know, we can have all this great discussion, but it, but you're taking out of the regular circulation of, of being with kids. And at the end of the day, it's the same. The actual company decided to do this. I was talking to me, it's hard like to I give said, it yeah. cringe. Yeah. Also, the day themselves, this is no one censoring them in any whatsoever. Sure. They deciding, hey, we just think and for our own legacy, we're better off removing some of this. So the, so mm-hmm. he's not entirely framed under under this light based on, you know, whatever yeah. it is, six books. And I agree with that, that that is, that's why I started off my, by saying that this puts it in a completely different category by virtue of the fact that they self did it. I'm just saying that I wish they would have said, we're going to take this other step rather than just try to erase these books from the backlog. Right. Yes, I know you can get them in libraries and other places, but anyway, I think it's perhaps a bridge too far. All right, so that's uh, Dr. Seuss. All right, this is next one. This is going to be a doozy, so if we can agree with the last one, I think this is going to be a fun one. I'm not even sure what we're actually agreeing or disagreeing on or agreeing so, on this uh, one. Yeah, so on this one, look, specifically, uh, you know, uh, former president, uh, former vice president Pence mm-hmm. broke his silence to condemn the Democrats' sweeping voting reform bill. So we'll, we'll do the courage on courage on his... Breaking silence? Yeah, on, yeah, on his position, on okay. him, his op-ed that he wrote, right? Mm-hmm. So just to give it get some, con- some context. So there's been... There's an ongoing battle uh, in the nation for voting rights uh, that is happening currently, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, a number of Republican state lawmakers across the country pro- have proposed measures that will limit access to voting, right? And this is with the goal of making it more secure, and I put that in, in air quotes. At the same time, congressional Democrats have been pushing for sweeping legislation to expand voter access. So you have literally both parties who are going the opposite directions in terms of as it relates to the voting, voting rights and, and ability for people to be able to vote or easily vote. One, trying to make it much more accessible, one, trying to make it more secure, which is sort of code word for, for one more accessible and one less accessible, right? And onto this battle, former Vice President uh, Mike Pence decided to weigh in with an op-ed that he wrote condemning the House Democrats' sweeping election and anti-corruption bill called For the People's Act, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I'll read off a couple of these pieces just to give some context, and then we can, we can debate, right? So he started a piece by saying that after an election marked by significant voting irregularities and numerous instances of officials setting aside state law, election law, I share the concerns of millions of Americans about the integrity of the 2020 election. He also talked about the, you know, the Capitol um, um, attack, right? The tragic events of January 6th, the most significant being the loss of life and violence at our nation's capital, also deprived the American people of, of substantive discussion in Congress about election integrity in America. 
You know, as it relates to the bill itself, Pence called the bill unconstitutional, reckless, and anti-democratic bill that would erode those fun- foundational principles and mm-hmm. could permanently damage our public, our republic. I'm sorry. I said it would increase opportunities for election fraud, trample the First Amendment, further erode confidence in our elections, and forever dilute the votes of legally qualified eligible voters. Um, he, came, he went on to say that congressional district will be withdrawn by unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats, illegal immigrants, and law-abiding citizens will be received equal representation in Congress, and felons will be able to vote the moment they set foot out of prison. You know, part of the argument that you know that Pence is making in this is basically saying that voting needs to be made more secure so that people can uh, can uh, trust the process again, right? Mm-hmm. And, he, and, he, and he quotes, polling, showing, polling shows that a large number of Democrats did not trust the outcome of 2016 election and that large numbers of Republicans still do not trust the outcome of 2020 election. Now, what the People's Act or H1, HR1 bill is, is uh, it would do a couple of things. Restore voting uh, rights for felons, expand early and absentee voting, set national standards for early voting and voter registration, and allow voters to register online or on election day and prevent voter purges, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so this is obviously, look, this is a deep topic with a lot of layers to it. You know, what I found really interesting about this topic, and part of the reason why I thought it would be, it'd be good for Courage or Cringe, is that it, there is some level of irony of having, you know, former Vice President Pence come out with a position of, of basically wanting to uh, push back against some of the reform on election on voting, as a way to give people more trust in the actual voting process, being that the lack of trust in the voting process is what actually got us to this moment. Uh-huh. And he specifically almost you know, personally became a victim of, of, of this, you know, seated, uh, you know, lies in many cases that, 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 uh, that former pre- President Trump had made uh, that created that kind of situation. And the whole thing just seems super ironic to me for him to come, come out and have his position, being of what just happened and what nearly happened to him uh, on, on January 6th. Uh, Nee, have you been tracking this story? No, I didn't actually hear about it until this podcast. Until preparing for this show, exactly. (laughs) We always always give the the tough homework. Um, Jesus, do you want to do you want to kick us off, or should we go? Yeah, sure. Um, You know, for me, when I when I look at this, and just based on how I'm framing, you probably know where I stand here. I do find it very very cringy of uh, a former vice president. Uh, Mike Pence uh, having this kind of position, um, mm-hmm. and especially in the the whole push of 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 making the claim, I think a couple of things of what he said. One is the fact that he starts his piece by saying there were so many irregu- voting irregularities um, as being like basically the reason why we need to have stricter voting laws that restrict people's ability to actually go out and vote, mm-hmm. and those same irreg- irregularities uh, being used as the main reason why former President Trump said there was fraud which already was proven that it was not the case in terms of, while there were irregularities, there was no massive fraud. Mm-hmm. And I think to him to go back to those, basically the same kind of core reasoning that former President Trump used and, and people that are under his camp that ultimately led to this like you know terrible moment that happened on January 6th as the reason to try to limit people's ability to vote. I, I just have a really hard time understanding that. Him who almost personally, I mean, he came you know very close to being uh, you know, a wrong turn here or there, and they talk, they've talked about it. If, if they would have gotten him, like, there's no way that he makes it alive in my mind. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess, I guess we don't know what would have happened if, if they would have captured him or not, sure. or not. But I just don't think he makes it. So I have a really hard time with that. And I guess the, the broader piece to me when I, when I think about this argument is that anytime that I hear, um, you know, voting laws that are being trying to be put in place to make it hard for people to vote, 
I have a hard time with that because, I mean, I, I think that we should all be striving for more Americans wanting to vote because even with the millions that did vote, right, which is 100 and – what would it have been? 149, give or take, right, 149 million that, that actually voted. That's still a percentage of people that could actually vote. Yeah. You still don't get There's full like participation. Million, right. Like you still don't mm-hmm. get full participation. Mm-hmm. Shouldn't the goal be to find ways to get more people to actually vote, be part of the process, not less people? Sure. Well, and if you view it like these, that, there's no right, question that And then all of these claims on, on right. security of, of the voting and how much fraud, it's just not proven to be the case. It never has been. But yet, you see all of, I mean, one of the things that I went in as I was doing the research on it, there was, uh, there's a Brennan Center that has tracked more than 253 bills in 43 states that are seeking to restrict access to voting, such as reducing early voting hours. The number is more than seven times the number introduced at the same time last year. So there's this residual effect sure. that, is, that is taking place right now of people that are basically still in the camp of, of President Trump saying that it was fraud and therefore are now proactively trying to change the law because what they figured what they realized is that once voting happened you can't you know you can't try to like change the law you know retroactively right uh, and try to change the rules after you agree to to be, to begin with mm-hmm. so that's why to me the whole thing is super cringy and then for him specifically who was so close to being the victim of this type of, of thinking use that same logic to try to push his agenda I just I just don't understand it that's me? a very long-winded as to the, the cringe. That's a very long-winded cringe. Very That's okay. Cringe. We got to the end of it. Ni. <laughs> I have a not courage, which I, I guess would be cringe <laughs> <laughs> in, in this case. And it's, it's it hard not to be, pay, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for, for on its face. Because what, I th- what stood out to me about the Pence piece was that at the end, he acknowledged two things which I think are at the center of this issue. One, we want to ensure that all eligible citizens can vote. And then two, we want to reduce fraud. I don't think there's it's probably very few people, no matter what your ideology is, who would disagree with those two things, right? Mm-hmm. But most of his piece was spent just othering this irredeemable other side who's everything they do is stupid and like it's just going to tear down America, which is leading us in this direction of polarization that's not helpful and so that to me is not courageous that's just doing the same things that we've been doing that got us in this situation versus setting up like he basically wrote his piece backwards like if he would have flipped it upside down started with the premise that here's what we're trying to achieve and from this conservative viewpoint from whatever the pence mindset is here are the things that are wrong with the way that the democratic bill is set up that we need to address so that we can achieve both of these goals. But he basically attacks it in its totality. And then at the end is like, Oh yeah, but I get, you know, that really what we want to do is make sure the most amount of people vote and there is no thought, which are orthogonal concepts that I think in this case get confused. So here's a surprise gentlemen. We're all going to agree on this one. Um, The headline, the, the idea that uh, Pence This particular piece, how he spoke out, his breaking in silence in this particular way, for me, is also a cringe. The substance of what he's actually talking about is not. And I think that like so many of the controversies in air quotes um, or headlines that we have to contend with, you know, we deal with one in the case of voting irregularities and fraud insofar as the left says or generally says there's no large-scale voter fraud, and the right says there's a well-documented history of election fraud. And the thing is, both of those statements are actually true, that there is no large-scale voter fraud evidence, 
and the fact that there is a well-documented history of election fraud. In fact, um, and this you know goes back, there's a bipartisan commission on federal election reform that was actually headed up by Jimmy Carter and uh, former Secretary of State James Baker that confirmed there's a long history of irregularities and fraud. Is it enough to make a substantive difference? The answer is no, at least certainly not in the case of the 2020 election. Right. And so we talk past each other on that point because it's like, oh, there's no large-scale fraud. Yeah, but listen to the words I'm saying. I'm not talking about that. Or maybe some people are. They absolutely maybe are some talking are. about that. Well, and then some That's people— That's how we did a, like a recount in Georgia like three times. Agreed. And then there's other people on the side who, who are only talking, to my mind, only talking about the fact that there's nothing that's been massive that's happened. Okay, well, we, we shouldn't set like, you know, to use a terrible example, it's like killing 100 people shouldn't be the benchmark. Just killing one is, should be bad, right? So trying to solve for election fraud is something I think, to me's point, we should all want, right? And I think we kind of talk past each other in that. The other thing is that the reason why substantively I think people who are right of center disagree with bills like this is because they either directly or implicitly, explicitly, whatever, but take power away from the states, from the local areas where people actually are, which is how the Constitution is typically is set up, right, it, with respect to elections. It's about what the state uh, basically determining the way that they actually um, elect their electors and then you know, basically reporting out those findings to the federal government. And so things that, you know, smack of centralization, of federalization, and move away from a process of the states is what I think people push back on in generally. Now, this one also has, you know, specific things that I think people can in very good conscience disagree with. Like, for instance, the fact that this, this bill makes the District of Columbia the 51st state. I mean, like, I, I hadn't seen that in any headline, but it's in the bill. Like, yeah. well, that's a pretty big deal to have, like, a 51st state. And what does that do in terms of the Senate makeup and all these different things? Those are things that people of goodwill can disagree with. But the headlines make it impossible for us to actually engage. We and talk actually, kind of past each other. I didn't even realize that point. But that has been one that's been debated quite a bit. As a matter of fact, they were saying that's part of the problem because D.C. has no individual representation, no state representation, right? That's right. Which is part of the challenge. But I mean, D.C. Like, is also 80% the, Democrat. 80% Democrat, right? So when you make that a state, it's there's, at least implicitly, a, a balance of power issue that has to be thought about, right? So people can debate these things. That's all I'm saying. On, the, on that sure. point, yeah. in terms of the power, I, th I think there's an interesting... I, I'm curious about what you all think about this, but the alignment of morality and ideals seems to favor which, which, what is going to make either party win. So if, for example restricting voter access mm -hmm. or expand let's take it the opposite way if expanding voter access would help the conservative party do you think they would still be so gung-ho about preserving states rights and like that sort of thing yeah I or, think or vice versa because i think each party is sort of like protecting whatever it thinks it's going to help it win sure. and then yeah. they're I After think, the fact, applying sure. whatever their their lens is. My, my, my sense is neither. It would probably be a bit of a mixed bag. I think to the extent that people are principled about their opposition, as the same would be the case on the left side, that it probably wouldn't make a difference. I think some people would say, hey, this is really advantageous, and I'll, you know, I'll go ahead and, and you know, take action on this. But I think some of this also does, at least to me, boil down to, you know, in some respects, um, 
the way that people view human nature, right? Let's look at like ballot harvesting as an example, right? The idea that this bill says basically on a nationwide level that would base, that would be allowed. And what that is is people can go into a neighborhood or into a nursing home or into a hospital or into any place and basically help people fill out their absentee ballots and all that stuff and then collect a bunch of them and bring them into their polling place. Now, I'm sure in the vast majority of cases people can do that without trying to put their thumb on the scale, without losing some in the backseat of the car, without doing... But the fact of it is, is that when you have one person serve as the kind of staging area for lots of people to vote, just the mathematical likelihood that something can go wrong is greater. And so if somebody brings that up and says, gee, that seems like a problem... Um, like, yes, in that particular case, in those areas, it probably the outcome would favor their opposition, but that doesn't mean that they don't have a valid point. You know what I mean? So like, yeah, I, the, mm-hmm. no, that's that's fair. I think the, the, the part where I, I just have a hard time understanding the argument that many of these folks are making in the case of when you mentioned about irregularities, there, mm-hmm. there is irregular irregularities in every single election. I think the issue is when you change law or policy in order to address irregularities that are mathematically do not make a difference to the outcomes of an election. That's where that right there, that math doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't tie out mm-hmm. is that you're solving for the 0.1% by changing the rules on every, on the other 99.9%. And, and that is the, I think the issue of, of, of uh, at the heart of this entire thing is that I think um, uh, Georgia was a great example of this, right? They went through the regular election. They did a manual count. And while there was some changes, it was such a small percentage of what they found of the, of the actual number of votes being counted that if, if, if given to – if using that as the example, see, we did find at least – if you find at least one vote that wasn't correct, change the entire law. Let's rest- make it more restrict for people to actually vote because we found one vote to be wrong. Well, wait a minute. If that one vote is such a small percentage to make an actual difference, then are we better off getting more people to vote? Because at the end of the day, wouldn't that be better participation of the entire country to be involved in the political process, not less people? And the, the, other, the other thing is, most of these things that we're talking about here, even in the case of, of, of a voter, um, what's called harvesting, right, which would be is like those are going to impact more of those underserved communities that don't have many times the technology or the access to themselves go out to the voting booths and, and do some of these things. So those are the ones that end up getting hurt the most, right? So I always have an issue when, you, when people are trying to solve for, in a sweeping manner, for a very, very small percentage of something and making that the, the core reason as to why the entire thing should be, should be flipped on its head. Mm-hmm. Because it's not like you're ever going to get rid of irregularities and make that 0%. You're going to have some small percentage, but if it's not financially, if it's not making a difference, then why restrict it for everybody else because of that small percentage? Mm-hmm. See what I'm saying? Yeah, fair point. Fair point. But, um, nee, sorry, did you have any, something else? Oh, no. Oh, I'm okay. listening. No, 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 it's good. I'm just uh, trying to watch for the uh, the body cues. But, um, yeah, look, it's a, it's, a, it's a super interesting topic, and I think it bears the kind of discussion that oftentimes we're just not able to have because I guess the last point that I would say is it's, it's come to the point where I feel that if you do have questions about some of these methods, um, just the fact that you have a question about it puts you into a camp that's sort of outside, you know, the – I don't know the mainstream of of the you know of the discussion worthy. You know what I mean? Like, I hey, these are kind of settled that. things. Yeah, it, yeah, it's it's a tough time to you know it's just it's just such a difficult time right now to have that because unfortunately, you know, it was because of many of those questions that yeah. led to an attack on the Capitol. Agreed. And that's but know, was it the questions or is it the fact that we can't start discussing the nuance? Like, to to me, it's you can ha- you should question things that right. don't make sense, right? But when you start talking in 
absolutisms sure. and things of that yeah. nature. Which is why never get down to the yeah. like, what's yeah, actually right. going on. Which is why it, it, the pen, Pence is a cringe, but the content, at least for me, is not. Yeah, and even for the capital attack, it wasn't the question of it. It was the accusation that it was fraud. Right. It wasn't like, hey, we should maybe look at it to make sure that is everything is, is OK there. It's, it wasn't that at all. Um, I think that's what ultimately led to that point. But, yeah, I mean, look, this is a, uh, it's a super complicated topic. I think we'll continue to to go. Uh, we'll, we'll get debated. Um, but there is hope because we've got full alignment on this. Full one. alignment somehow. <laughs> all right. Let's see if we can get that's, this. That's usually one. a bad sign. If everybody <laughs> yeah, gets that group that's thing so, kicking that's in. That's, that's, it. that's not good. Although, you know, I would say many times when Charlie and I agree is like all completely different reasons, by the way, which is kind of funny. Right. Like. <laughs> And, but it does give you hope that you can find middle ground sure. on issues, even if your rationale for how you got to the middle ground may be slightly different, which is okay. Still thumbs up in this still, case. Still, or thumbs, thumbs we'll still down. take it as, a, as yeah. a slight win. Um, What's next? Uh, YouTube. Aha. Uh-huh. So YouTube CEO says the platform will lift Trump's suspension when risk of violence drops. By the way, how do I say her last name? Uh, Wojcicki. Wojcicki, oh wow! Yeah. Yeah, I would not think that from the, from the spelling. But and her sister is the CEO of uh, the DNA company. The t- what is it? Uh, uh, twenty twenty three and Me. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. So um, on this topic, so let, let's get into it. So YouTube CEO Susan Wojcicki said last week that the platform will lift the suspension on the account of former President Donald Trump once the risk of violence declines. By the way, was she asked about this? Like, what was the genesis of her yeah, coming out sure. and saying I, this? That's funny. I, don't, I think it was that she was being interviewed, but I don't, I don't recall seeing where she was being interviewed. Um, now, YouTube first suspended the account on January 12th, which is about a week after the attack on, on the U.S. Capitol. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she said, and I quote, where we stand today, it's hard for me to say when that's going to be, but it's pretty clear that right now we stand uh, that there still is that elevated risk of violence. Now, YouTube said that it will look at a variety of signals to determine if the risk had changed, which include statements and warnings from the government, increased law enforcement presence, um, I'm assuming like at certain places, right, and rhetoric that YouTube monitors on its own platform. Now, regarding the former president Trump's suspension from the other, the other major platforms, Twitter's ban is permanent, right? So they've made no claim that you want to take that off. And then Facebook's suspension is indefinite and has referred the ban to its independent oversight board of review, which we've talked about the, the board of review, uh-huh. how they're using it. Uh-huh. So it's indefinite for now, but they're going to have this independent board look at it and I guess from there decide whether or not they are going to uphold their decision or not. So courage or cringe here, I think, on obviously the statements of, uh, of, uh, of the YouTube CEO um, in terms of how the external risk of violence should basically uh, dictate whether or not former President Donald Trump accounts should be uh, suspended or not. So if we're judging it expressly, just to be clear, on the fact that the decision means that the context now matters, not just the content. In other words, something could have happened five years ago, but now what we're going through today means means something with respect to that. I mean, the way that I read her statement mm-hmm. is the context matters even more than the content. Because, they're, look, if it was just about the content, then, then frankly, the content is what it is. Like He hasn't posted a new content on YouTube. Yeah. He's already, he's not, this is not about, about lifting the suspension. So you've already made a determination that, you know, you needed to pause or, or suspend his account for X period of time. Now you're saying regardless of what that content has been and he's not producing any new content on YouTube, so he can't even say anything new there, then it's entirely dependent on context. Uh-huh. Right? It's all about what the current environment is and whether they think that because of that current environment, anything that, that Donald Trump puts on there on YouTube could, could then lead to some other kind of violence or something else. Okay. Well, we're going to go to the person who has the most experience with social platforms, and that's our guest, Nee. All right, Nee. 
Let's do it. Yes. Uh, well, so I, I think the, def- the definition of what the underlying issue is is super important because I think I may have just went from courage to cringe if that's what, what happens we're sometimes. Saying yep. Is that in this case, I mean, because there's a whole thing with banning people and, you know, mm-hmm. social media mm-hmm. platforms, censoring people and things like that, which I think has been handled poorly across the board, largely because the social media platforms did not know they had this much influential, powerful power over what's happening in the world and cultures and movements and, you know, cults and all, all sorts of other things. That aside, this particular decision is what I think they're doing is they assume they know what Trump's content is going to be. So they're holding that constant. So mm-hmm. it's, it's always going to be bad, which I, I think there's problems with. Uh, and then the context saying, you know, that's gasoline and we have too much, there's too much, you know, firewood here for us to pour that on right now. And, and there's still embers crackling. And so if, if that's the case where we're saying the context overrides the content, I don't think that's a direction we generally want to go because it, inherently makes assumptions about what people are doing now if trump were to come back and they were say okay it's more about the content and continued to violate whatever you know their policy policies that Mm -hmm. they have laid out then you can cancel someone indefinitely it happens all the time on social media Mm -hmm. whether it's too adult material or it's, it's in violation of the underlying policies but if you're starting to lean more heavily on the context to me that is an opportunity for bias. I think in this regard, uh, you know, I've, I follow a lot of different YouTube channels and it seems like YouTube has actually been one of the more progressive, not in the right or left sense, but they've been had looser t- um, controls than Twitter and Facebook. And so a lot of the conservative media that I pay attention to has is sort of still existing on YouTube. But I even see there seems to be this bias uh, against conservative uh, viewpoints um, because partially because of what happened, but also that's that's fine and fair for people who may not think that way right now. But what happens when that spills over and then mm-hmm. that becomes the way that these platforms operate holistically? They're kind of making moves against it's almost like the minority report situation. I was literally going to say that. I had it in my yeah. mind already. I was like, I'm going to quote <laughs> this right now. You ruined that name. Uh, we always have, we always, we always I'm the guest. The, you got to give me the. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we always have a movie rock. reference. That's funny. Yeah. Go ahead. Were you, were you done, Nee? Well, yeah. I mean, that that's basically it's just like it's it puts too much discretion on the point mm-hmm. on the in the hands of social media. I do understand. There is, I do believe, something new that they have to define around. And you know, I frame this sort of like Trump is cult leader, not necessarily in a negative way, but the, the fact that people mobilize around him. Sure, uh, cult of personality, no question. Um, and so. He does have the potential to drive action, whether it be violent or, or what have you. So, you know, these, these platforms need to be cognizant of that. But I'm talking more about philosophically putting the cart before the horse and saying, well, we, we right. think we know what you're going to do. And this context, we don't we don't like it. So we're going to hush you until sort of like we feel the time is right. D- does it also... Um have an implication on the whole uh, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, the thing we've been talking about in terms of this being a move, if you're going to consider context to align you more as a publisher than a platform? Is this um, feed into that? I mean, sort of, but I mean, the, the interesting thing here is just what they're weighing, putting more weight around in their calculus to mm-hmm. determine whether or not to lift the suspension. And to Nee's point, you're either 
yeah, you're either putting a lot more weight in just context of what's happening currently, what the environment looks like, uh, and let that determine whether or not they could even you know make your content available because you're assuming some kind of like this sort of similar type of content get, get out there, or you're a, you're you know a little bit of that minority report. You're already like predicting what your next content is going to be. Like, oh, right now there's a debate over the you know the pandemic relief relief bill, and I know if Trump comes out, he's going to say this or that, and therefore he's going to. Like then you're doing that kind of predictive yeah, it's like 4D uh, chess. So yeah. that yeah, e- either way it sounds complicated. Uh, yeah, I don't know how much that that weighs into it, Charlie. Um, I think in this case, it, it is a really interesting dynamic that at least I hadn't heard of before that anyone would would have said that. That's how I was pretty surprised about their position. So, Nee, then in the final analysis, then tell me because it seemed like you were you started with one way, but you kind of ended in another. Where where do you ultimately net out on this? Well, it's. Two different topics. So I believe the fact that they are open to reinstating him is, is courage, okay. which is where I started. I believe that their current thinking about how they're making that termination has some cringe factors because it's so opaque, so subjective, mm-hmm. uh, and if it were applied more broadly, is I think is an issue. And I, you know, I understand why they're doing it because they actually don't know how to handle this, <laughs> and right. so right. Yeah. you know they're just trying stuff. Uh, but they need to have, because, you know, I'm very, as we focus on, you know, even DEI at work and things of that nature, it's yeah. very important to have very clear uh, rules about how you evaluate people and do certain things so that bias doesn't play a factor. And so this is an example of where you're essentially allowing, or enabling that or supporting it. Sure. It's so interesting that you mentioned at the top. It's like I kind of started off this way, but I've sort of been evolving in my thinking as we've been talking because I, I find myself in the same category. Mm-hmm. I have in my notes uh, courageous with a question mark, <laughs> literally courageous, um, because my initial thought was the same as yours, uh, Nee, which was, okay, the fact that they're saying once the circumstances which we said needed to be fulfilled in order to for this account to be reinstated occur, this per- this will be reinstated. And I thought, well, Okay, you're treating um, President Donald Trump, President Trump, as you would anybody else, and you know you're kind of abiding by the things that you said. So, I think given the circumstances, this is courageous. But at the same time, the the added layer, or the implication of adding that contextual layer to it, which is a pretty big deal, right? It's like you're really making a fully, not just editorial, but a prognostication yeah. um, position. It's like you've now become like YouTube intelligence. You know what I mean? It's like we're gonna have to come up with a new well, acronym. Um, well, they are. I mean, it's a whole company sure. built on AI. Well, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, but well, yeah, agreed. But I'm saying in terms of bringing that AI down to the individual creator level and, like, you know, you don't know what, uh, you know, PewDiePie is going to post next week. I have a good guess, but, you know. Right. Um, but my point is that I hadn't really considered that and what, what it actually means. And I do think that that is um, cringe. So I think um, I, I, I find myself that I'm in knees camp on this one as well. Um, I guess across the board, as I originally envisioned it, it would be courageous, um, uh, the decision that they made. Or, yeah. the, or, the, or, the, or the fact that they said they, were, they could make this decision in the future. That's, that's so interesting to both of you. I was super courageous on this one immediately. <laughs> um, and I think it is maybe because of exactly how I framed it um, in my mind the second I saw this, right? Which is... Look, I'm all for I as much as I may agree or disagree with someone getting their account suspended. The part where I do agree is if you set up your content rules, your content policy and someone violates that content policy, then as a platform, you have more than right to be able to take them off the platform, suspend them. And I have no issue with that. Right. What I have an issue with here is that this no longer is about the content policy. 
This no longer is about the content that the person is actually creating. It's literally about what the environment is, what other people are doing outside of his control, outside of anything that he's doing from mm-hmm. a content standpoint. And that kind of burden seems unfair, um, unjust to anyone, mm-hmm. right? Like you're, So to me, it's like either have a content policy that you believe in and agree with, and that content policy can change, and I get that. And you may sure. even say, my content policy will change over time because the environment is changing over time. I'm okay with that as well. But don't put a different layer of burden to an individual because of the environment in a, in a certain case that you're not applying to everybody else. Sort of like changing the rules midstream. Yeah, it's yeah. like at that point, like, good luck ever trying to come back. I just think it's worse saying that than to simply say that we're going to reinstate That's them. why I wanted to know what drove this her saying anything. Like, I just didn't, I didn't get I know, that they, in the articles. I, yeah, I think it must have been interviewed, I guess. But it, it's, it's a really, really, really hmm. odd one for me for that, for that reason. Uh, and it does have those, you know, to Nee's point, a little bit of that minority report kind of saying, like, well, do you know something that, that we sure. don't know about what he's going to say in this, you know, six months from now, what this other thing is happening that is going to be a big problem? Like, that seems very, very odd to me uh, to uh, to approach it this way, you know? Like, I, I would rather, I'm much more respectful. They would say, hey, we, you know, we suspended the account. We think that now it's been long enough. And if he violates the, 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 content, the, conduct policy, the content policy again, then he w- it will be indefinite mm-hmm. and leave it at that. Or we think it, it was he violated enough that we have no interest in him being on YouTube. Well, it doesn't. And then moving on. It, do- it doesn't seem that whatever they do or don't do is going to have um, sort of an automatic uniform reaction from the rest of the social platform space, right? Because Twitter has banned him indefinitely. Facebook has thrown it up to Mount Olympus to see what Mount Olympus has to say this uh, committee of, of – uh, you know, superhumans, they're going to come back with their decision, which I don't know when that's going to happen or if it'll ever yeah. happen. So it seems like they're all dealing with this or doing it they in, have in different, different ways. Yeah, they all have their different, their different process. Uh, but uh, I, I guess out of, the, out of all of these, I respect Twitter's way more. Mm-hmm. They're at least being consistent. They're like, hey, we decided what it is and then nothing else is going to change it. Like you violated it enough times and we try to correct it and you didn't, you know, you didn't need to let us correct it. So good luck. Yep. I, I, I think they're the most consistent for that reason. By the way, Facebook, I know you keep on saying Mount Olympus, but Mount Olympus is what they have now. Like, without the oversight board, they could just decide what stays and what goes. That's what YouTube is. Right. That is Mount Olympus. Right. There's only one Olympian. There's only one Olympian. You're saying, like, <laughs> yeah, well, we'll see how the environment changes over the next six months. And right. Then if we think it's okay, then we'll let you come back. Or There's no way, no one else is weighing in. At least in the case of Facebook, you have a diverse, literally, set of reporters and other people that are from different parts of the media that get chance to weigh in outside of Facebook, mm-hmm. you know. So at least from that standpoint, it's a little bit better. Yeah, that makes sense. Any any uh, any last words on this one? Um, I mean, I do. Like I mentioned a little bit before, I think the restorative approach to me is is better than an outright cancel ahead of time. Um, although I am, I've you know, I've been having conversations, and somebody actually mentioned that part of what cancel quote unquote cancel culture may achieve is dislodge the inertia of cultural habits, right? Bad mm. habits, things of that nature. So while it's 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 a terrible end state, it's lazy, uh, it doesn't involve like actually changing behaviors necessarily. It puts an, it basically is oppressive at a high level across the board. So there may be particular groups that are get used to get oppressed, but now it's super oppressive. So everyone starts thinking and acting a little bit differently as the pendulum swings to something more balanced. And so I do think as these social media platforms work out, because it's a new 
forum and platform for voices to cut through where media used to hold mm -hmm. a lot of the keys in terms of who can reach people. So that has died around and there's all kinds of controls over, or you know, less maybe now than even 10 years ago of what the media is able to do. But these social platforms, yes, maybe they're not publishers, but they do have a responsibility in sort of creating a culture, right? And they, they mm -hmm. do drive culture. We know those sorts of things. For sure. So, so moving away from sort of the outright cancel, I think is, is sort of, there's deeper problems in our overall society that really like to punish harshly and quickly. Um, yeah. And so mm. I, I do, I am a fan generally of them starting to think about how they can change behavior versus eliminate people. Yeah, absolutely. Like Don't disagree with that. And certainly not the whole restorative tip. That's definitely uh, in keeping with my ideology, philosophy, not just in this kind of issue, but in general. So agree with you there. Nee, I know we got to get you on your way because you got uh, places to go and people to see. But um, can you tell the folks how they can follow your work, get in touch with you, you know, follow Philo? Like what's important that's on the docket that you want to share? Sure. Uh, I mean, check out Philo at philo.tv. Uh, if you're looking for streaming options, I think, you know, for me more generally, um, you know, trying to get out there more and speak on these types of topics and what's happening in the media industry. You can check me out on LinkedIn is probably the best, best place to, to find me, but I really appreciate you guys having me on and having this discussion. It was as beautiful as usual and um, really, really like the provocative thinking. Awesome. Well, it was, uh, it was all, all made all that much better by having you on, my friend. So thank you very much for being a fan. Thank you for joining us. Jesus, any final words of wisdom? No words of wisdom. Excited. Not today. You've no, given all was, your wisdom already. I was, uh, yeah, you know, th these things are always great from the, in the context of the thing. Well, you said me, it's happened to me plenty of times, but as you're going through this half of the time, changing your mind, look, I think it speaks to a broader opportunity that we all have to just listen more and like be willing and be okay with changing your mind like that's okay that's okay and i think that's yeah. maybe that's the theme of today's uh today's episode amen let's leave on that one so uh you all out there keep listening and we'll see you again next time on tdr If you enjoyed this episode of the diversity remix please remember first of all to subscribe and help us to spread the word tell your friends family co-workers and give us a five-star review we're available on apple and google podcasts spotify and everywhere else you get your listening fix and lastly please remember to stop by blackbrown.us the creator of this podcast and take a look at our work and our approach at the intersection of diversity and business the Diversity Remix is produced by Leo Gomez with production services by Jose Manuel Durquidi and Luis Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Network. The Diversity Remix is a production of Black Brown. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com/slash activecash.